Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. In labs around the world, geneticists are working on a project that sounds like something straight out of science fiction. They're trying to bring extinct species back to life. They call it de-extinction, and it's become plausible with the invention of CRISPR. It's a gene editing technology that's faster, cheaper, and easier to use than anything scientists have had before. Imagine CRISPR as a pair of molecular scissors that scientists can use to cut and paste genes that influence certain traits. It allows for previously unimaginable control over genetics. Over the next few weeks, we're re-examining our reporting on the transformative effects of genetic advancements like CRISPR from medicine to our dinner plates. This week, can you bring an animal back from the past? Scientists are looking to the woolly mammoth and passenger pigeon as the first candidates for de-extinction. But what happens to an ecosystem if you bring back a species that left it hundreds or, sometimes, thousands of years ago? In this encore edition of The Future of Everything, reporters Amy Doxer-Marcus and Jennifer Strong follow a group of scientists and birders working to bring an extinct breed of pigeon back from the dead. I know it's hard often for people that live in cities. They see pigeons in the park or in, you know, in the middle of some square and consider them really a pest maybe or a dirty animal, but they have a real cult following. Hi, I'm Amy Doxer-Marcus. I'm a staff reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I cover health and science, and I write a lot about CRISPR. The passenger pigeon in particular is so tied with American history. It's kind of an icon of the conservation movement. Passenger pigeons used to be the most abundant bird in North America. They numbered anywhere from three to five billion. They traveled in these enormous flocks, and people would note that they were passing overhead, and they were so struck by the the spectacle of it all, you know, pigeons darkening the skies for days as they traveled overhead, that they kept a historical record of it. Humans hunted the passenger pigeon to extinction. The last bird, named Martha, died at a Cincinnati zoo in 1914. And the death of the pigeon inspired modern conservation laws to try to protect endangered species from going extinct. For the past six years, scientists, geneticists, and bird enthusiasts have been trying to correct human destruction. They're using new gene editing technology in an attempt to bring back a bird that disappeared more than 100 years ago. What's so compelling about people who are trying to bring back extinct species is that you're using a futuristic technology to go back into the past. And there's something very incongruous about trying to do those two things at the same time. These species are gone. They're extinct. Some of them went extinct, not even in our parents' lifetimes or our grandparents' lifetimes, but thousands and thousands of years ago. It's almost like science fiction where you're taking a ride back into another era that you can't even begin to imagine. And so I found that the combination of those two things very compelling. And there's also something that leaves you unsettled about what this might mean. So I wanted to go talk to people who feel passionately that this is a good idea. Let's go slowly because she's yep. sitting on an egg. 
which is a rarity. It's only the fourth egg she's laid thus far. Last winter, we visited Holland Shaw at his home in western Massachusetts. By day, he's a land surveyor of oil and gas pipelines. But his passion is the passenger pigeon. He's walking us through the snow to a shed in his backyard that houses four band-tailed pigeons, the closest living relative to the passenger pigeon. It's a beautiful bird, actually. When the sunlight hits their neck, as it did with the passenger pigeon, you see this iridescence, this gold and green and various colors. Unfortunately, the pigeons are not feeling very friendly. I wish they would perform for you and make their usual cooing-type noises. Periodically, the male will make a call. It's, I couldn't possibly imitate it. Luckily, Shaw has a lot of pigeon paraphernalia. In his living room, he plays us a recording of the pigeon's call. This is the typical sound I hear. He also shows us his passenger pigeon book collection. So researched at the library and discovered this book, which is the definitive book. This is a scientific study. It tells you everything. And he plays a recording of a passenger pigeon-inspired symphony. Apparently this part is titled The Assembling of the American Wild Passenger Pigeons in the Far West for Their Grand Flight or Migration. I assume that's one of the movements. Shaw's obsession with the passenger pigeon goes back to childhood. I think I was eight or nine years old, and my father used to take me fishing up on Pigeon Hill here about two miles away. I said to him, uh, What's the origin? Why do they call it Pigeon Hill? And he told me the story of the massive flocks of wild pigeons back in the 1800s. The passenger pigeon traveled in flocks so large that writers recount them darkening the skies for days as they passed overhead. This communal nature made them an easy target for hunters looking for food. They were market hunters. They were meat hunters. They would come into the forest, poke the birds out of the nest, they put sulfur pots under the trees in the roosts, burn the sulfur, and the fumes would kill the birds. They'd set nets, catch as many as they could. Shaw thinks since humans drove the passenger pigeon to extinction, we should bring them back now that we have the power to. Most people look at pigeons with disgust, the french fries behind the, the dumpster. But I just think what well, we, we owe it to this bird to bring it back in some, some capacity, if for no other reason, just as a reminder to the future generations that this is the bird that we so brutally drove into extinction. And it's a symbol, poster child, for what we're doing to so many other species, what we've done. One of the four band-tailed pigeons living in Shaw's backyard is named Sally. Her blood was used to help scientists sequence the genome of the passenger pigeon and band-tailed pigeon. It was led by Beth Shapiro, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. When people think about bringing extinct species back to life, most often what they think about is cloning, this scientific process that brought us Dolly the sheep. <laughs> Dolly is without question a normal, healthy, genetic marvel. She's an identical copy of an older sheep. But that's not how it works with extinct species because cloning requires a living specimen. And once an animal is dead, there are no living cells. In fact, what happens is right after death, enzymes that are in our own body or that are in bacteria that are around the surface, they start getting into each cell and chopping up that DNA in the cell, breaking it down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until eventually there's nothing left. To map the passenger pigeon's genome, Shapiro took tissue samples from the toe pads of stuffed birds. The dead tissue left them with clues but an incomplete picture. 
To fill in the gaps, they also sequenced the genome of Sally, the band-tailed pigeon in Holland Shaw's backyard. By comparing the genomes of the passenger pigeon and its closest relative, researchers are filling in the gaps of the full genome sequence. This is where the gene editing tool CRISPR comes in. And then we can take what we've learned about what makes these two species different and cut and paste our way to a passenger pigeon. Think of CRISPR as a tool that can add or delete genetic information. The system has two main parts, an RNA guide, which scientists program to target specific locations on a genome, and the Cas9 protein, which acts as a molecular scissors. And if that doesn't sound complicated enough, how do we take that cell in a dish, in a lab, and turn that into a living, breathing animal? Making any kind of mammal is much easier because of the miracle of the uterus. Ben Novak is an American scientist who lives outside Melbourne, Australia. He's leading the de-extinction of the passenger pigeon with a conservation group called Revive and Restore. You can create an embryo in vitro. A lot of people out there might be familiar with in vitro fertilization in people. You take your sperm and your eggs from your donors, make an embryo in a petri dish, and you can implant it in a surrogate mother. And the problem in a bird is that there is no uterus. Birds lay eggs. They start out as embryo and form layers as it tumbles inside the bird's body. The egg is laid and the embryo continues to develop until it hatches. It's just a a really dynamic system, which makes it very inaccessible to implant anything or take anything out. When we first started reporting this story, Novak hadn't figured out the pigeon and egg problem. Now, he has 24 experimental pigeons with reproductive systems that contain the Cas9 gene. It's an essential component of CRISPR, but the success rate is pretty low, which makes it difficult to produce genetically altered offspring. The goal is for the squabs of this flock to have the Cas9 gene in every one of their cells. That allows scientists to edit those birds' offspring with DNA from the extinct passenger pigeon. It also provides a roadmap for bringing back other extinct species. Novak is currently doing this with basic rock pigeons. We're creating a strain of experimental pigeons, just regular pigeons like you see on the street, as model organisms to study genetics so that we can introduce passenger pigeon genes quickly into them and then analyze the results so that we can discover which gene actually does make a red breast and which gene makes rapid juvenile development, the certain traits that we need, because we don't know the recipe yet. And once we discover the recipe, we'll apply that to bantail pigeons and we're off to the the pigeon races, literally. The process will be duplicated with band-tailed pigeons, the type kept by Holland Shaw, the birder we met earlier. That will make real passenger pigeons, depending on who you ask. One of the things that I learned that struck me was that in the near term, we are very unlikely to be able to bring back an exact 100% copy of an extinct animal. Again, the Wall Street Journal's Amy Doxer-Marcus. Cutting out DNA from the existing species, inserting the man-made DNA that replicates the extinct species, and thereby engineering what is essentially a new animal. Because it's not quite a passenger pigeon, but it's not a band-tail pigeon anymore. And this raises all kinds of ethical and other questions in your mind. What is it? What do you call it? Novak has already decided the new bird will be called Patagynus neoectopistes, or New Wandering Pigeon of America. 
because regardless of how close the bird mimics the original, it can't be engineered to interact with the world the exact same way. For instance, a true passenger pigeon from the 1800s might not be able to survive today's climate or diseases. And frankly, the passenger pigeon had some annoying traits that scientists could edit out. Remember, these birds flew in flocks of up to 5 billion. That's a lot of noise and a lot of poop. One person I interviewed said in response to a question about, do we really want three to five billion passenger pigeons? Is that what we're really looking for? He said, well, maybe not. That may be too many for us to handle, but we could use our technologies to edit out the gregarious nature of this bird, and perhaps then they wouldn't reproduce as as much or they would be different. But my question was, well, if you edit out the thing, the quality that made them what they were, then is that them? Some argue that's not really the point, that we should revive the passenger pigeon to have a living reminder of what we destroyed. Other people might argue that they do it because science is also about inspiring wonder and awe in people. And so when you set out to do these kinds of projects, you advance science that may also help animals that are in danger today, and you remind people of the beauty and majesty of nature and the power of science to do good in the world. But for as much good as Revive and Restore's project might do, introducing a new breed of pigeon could come with pitfalls. They're gone now, and environments continue to evolve depending on what species exist. And from the moment those species disappeared, the world was never the same. The habitat changed. And that even if we were able to successfully bring back a species and not create some sort of havoc, simply by bringing them back into a world that's no longer the same way it was when they once existed, we're already creating new problems. And does the knowledge we gain about CRISPR and what else it could be used for outweigh the negatives? Like many things that are challenging, there is no really one right answer or even a wrong answer. The question that it raises is, what do we as a society want? What are the best ways to use this technology? These questions are so profound. They're going to change everything from the land we walk on, the environment we live in, the food we eat, the air we breathe, how we bring babies into the world and what they'll look like in the future. None of us can decide that alone. For more on how scientists are trying to bring back extinct species, check out the Future of Everything newsletter. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Christian Schwab and reported by Amy Doxer-Marcus and Jennifer Strong, with help from Daniela Hernandez. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.